Society, the podcast that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and co-host of Dead Pilot Society. So we uh, we can't cook you a meal, can't take care of your kids while they're out of school, can't give you guaranteed paid sick leave or universal health care, but I think we can provide something that is pretty necessary at this moment, which is some laughs. You know, I keep thinking back to 2001 after 9-11, I was writing on Friends and it was easy most of the time to feel like what we were doing was frivolous. And especially after 9-11, all these people were dead. The world was turned upside down and we were sitting in a room cracking each other up, writing sex jokes. Uh, and then I read an article about all the funerals of the Cantor Fitzgerald employees who had died in the towers. And one of the widows that was interviewed said that the only thing that was getting her through the day was watching friends. And, you know, it feels grandiose to call being a comedy writer a noble calling, but I am feeling grateful to all the people who do it and do it well. And, Joe Port and Joe Wiseman do it very well. They wrote our pilot for this month. I love this pilot. Uh, it's called Eternally Yours, and it's just a really fresh take on a vampire comedy. Maybe you thought that was not possible. Um, it's just pure escapism. And isn't that what we're looking for right now? Our cast was Ed Weeks from The Mindy Project as Charles, Brigga Helan from Good News as Liz, Asif Ali from Wrecked as Max, Vela Lavelle from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend as Emma. Tony Cavallaro from The Righteous Gemstones as Jesse. Yasser Lester from Black Monday as Benji. Matt Walsh from Veep as Mort. Mindy Sterling from Austin Powers as Phyllis. Brendan Scannell from Heathers as Steve the Blood Guy. And David Fumero from Power as Henry. So obviously our upcoming live shows are postponed for the time being. Um, but uh, follow us on social media to see when those get rescheduled. Uh, after this episode, we do have two more really great pilots already recorded. We've got them in the can. That'll get us through the next couple of months, and we'll figure it out from there. Uh, and remember, we do have 45 really funny dead pilots on the feed for you to listen to. So go back, see what you've missed. You can even re-listen to some. I'll bet they'll seem even funnier right now because we need them to be funny so badly so sit back and listen to eternally yours followed by my interview with joe port and joe wiseman and um i don't know think about what you can do to be kind and to help someone today so here is eternally yours after a quick message hi it's jesse the founder of max fun coming to you from the microphone at my home office where i am socially segregating so we promised you a max fund drive this week but things haven't exactly gone how we expected so given the pandemic we're going to postpone this year's drive uh events are 
still fluid, so we're hesitant to give you specifics about new dates. Right now, we have late April penciled into our calendars. We'll keep you posted about that. As it stands, a lot of our drive machinery was already cranked up. So for one thing, you might hear a reference or two to the drive in our shows, which might have been recorded before we made this decision. And uh, here is some good news. There's a bunch of great bonus content available for all of our MaxFun members. If you're a member and you missed the email with instructions on how to listen, check your spam folder or log in at MaximumFun.org slash manage. Uh, also at MaximumFun.org slash manage, you can change your membership if your circumstances have changed. We know this is a tough time for a lot of people and we understand. You can also go to MaximumFun.org slash join at any time if you'd like to become a member. During the next couple of weeks, what would have been the drive, we're going to do our best to be extra available to you. Uh, we've got some streaming events planned, some social media stuff. We know a lot of folks are isolated right now, and we want to help provide comfort in the best ways that we know how. You can follow us on social media, and we'll let you know what's up. During this tough time, I have been feeling really grateful for my community of colleagues here at MaxFun and for you, the folks who make our work possible. Goofy as that work may sometimes be. Stay safe out there. We're thinking of you. All right. This is Eternally Yours, the pilot written by Joe Port and Joe Wiseman. It's act one. We fade in. We're exterior in Austrian castle. Moonlight shines on a stunning castle. We hear sounds of festive music and revelers. A party's going on inside. Torches and lanterns light a nearby wooden gazebo in which a young couple steals away for a moment's privacy. They kiss hungrily, hands exploring each other's bodies. This is Charles and Liz. They're both in their late 20s. A Chiron tells us that we're in Vienna, Austria, and it's 1519 AD. We hear a voiceover from our hero, Max. You know how in vampire movies there's always that scene? You know, the super romantic one where the woman begs the vampire she's dating to turn her into one, you know, so they can be together forever? In the gazebo, Liz speaks to Charles. So we can be together forever. Eternity is no small matter, my darling Liz. Is it not enough that we have a long, happy life together? <clears throat> What was that? What was what? The, um, the throat clear thing. Oh, I, I wasn't aware. Maybe my throat's a little dry. Lots of dust in these Austrian castles this time of year. <laughs> it matters not. See, Charles, even your quirks I cannot get enough of. I want to wake up to that throat clear every morn and fall asleep in its warm embrace until the end of time. Oh, Liz. Charles pulls her hair back and sensuously runs his finger down the side of her neck. He sniffs her neck, taking in her essence. She whispers in his ear, Do it. <laughs> Music swells. <laughs> Unable to control himself any longer, Charles opens his mouth wide, and we see his elongated vampire canines fully exposed. He plunges them deep into her neck, and she lets out a moan. Equal parts pleasure and pain. Yeah, but what they never show you is what happens afterward. And I'm not talking about right afterward. We pan up to focus on the starry night and dissolve to the Seattle sky. We pan down to a comfortable-looking suburban home. I'm talking way afterward. 
Chiron says we're in Seattle, Washington. It's 500 years later. It's the present day. <laughs> we're in the Blythe home. It's Charles and Liz's bedroom. Note that throughout, unless specified, our vampires dress and act like normal people. No accents other than yours, Ed. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no capes, etc. In juxtaposition to the romance of the previous scene, this moment could not be more mundane. Charles and Liz, by appearance unchanged in age, but now locked in the fifth century of an interminable marriage, <laughs> suffer through another night of marital ennui. Liz is flossing her teeth and watching Dr. Phil in bed while Charles reads a book. He clears his throat. <clears throat> she shoots him a not-so-subtle look and turns the volume on the TV way up. There's a beat. Charles clears his throat again, more aggressively this time. <clears throat> oh my God, would you stop doing that? Wow. I know you don't have to clear your throat. You know you don't have to clear your throat. The only reason you're doing it is because you know how much it annoys me. The two of them glare at each other for a long, tense beat. And then... <clears throat> and we smash cut to our main title, Eternally Yours. We're exterior of a veterinary clinic. Max, our hero, 27, idealistic, sure of himself, good-looking, walks his dog Sherman, an adorable mutt, Named after Seattle Seahawk, Richard Sherman. This is a story of how I met Charles and Liz, and how I got them to believe in love again. Or possibly how they turned me against it completely. I don't know, we're still battling it out. Max and his dog come to a veterinary clinic and enter. But before I met them, I met the woman of my dreams. We're interior, the exam room of the vet's office. Max watches as his dog is being examined by Emma. She's 25, a cynical, commitment-phobic, beautiful veterinarian. She was beautiful and smart and always knew the right thing to say. Well, I'm not feeling anything in his rectum. <laughs> uh, well, I, I really think he swallowed something. Okay, sure, that's possible. Or it's also possible that you just want to ask me out. <laughs> Excuse me? You know, I have a degree. I went to school for this, but word gets out that there's a new hot vet in town, and all of a sudden the waiting room is filled with a bunch of creepers with borrowed cats. So. We do a quick pop to the waiting room, which indeed is exclusively filled with guys, <laughs> one of whom, with a goldfish in a bag filled with water, checks his hair and makes sexy faces in a mirror. Back to Max and Emma in the exam room. Max's dog starts to heave a little, finally throwing up a tiny toy fire truck. Or I'm actually just a good guy concerned about his dog that I rescued. Oh, God, you are good, aren't you? Wait, why do you have a toy fire truck? It's probably from the children's hospital. I trained him to be a therapy dog. Uh, okay, fine. Dinner Thursday. We're at Max's apartment at night. Max and Emma are on the couch curling up with the dog. It had been an amazing couple of months. I don't think we should see each other anymore, Max. Well, it's been a few days since the last breakup, so I guess we were due. Hey, don't do that. Don't dismiss my breakups. You know I have commitment issues. I will not be in a relationship with someone that won't let me break up. Emma. Emma, I know you've been hurt before, and that you have a surprising amount of baggage for someone your age. But that doesn't scare me off, okay? Emma is touched. Max makes her feel safe. Now, can we get back together? It's been nine seconds. You've had your space. <laughs> Okay, fine. I missed you. <laughs> and they kiss. We're exterior of the Social Security Administration. It's the establishing shot of a government office building. A sign outside reads U.S. Social Security Administration Seattle office. We hear Max in voiceover. Meet cute? Check. 
girl who fulfilled my weird need to fix other people? Double check. It was almost too good to be true. Maybe it was. Inside, in the bullpen, Max is in his cubicle. His friend Benji, an overweight fanboy, is in the adjacent cubicle. Benji's is unkempt. <laughs> Um, Imagination. Just reading the words. Benji's is unkept and littered with superhero paraphernalia and fast food wrappers. Max's is neat and organized. She's not married. Stop saying that. Well, something's very weird. You've been together two months and she's never let you come to her house? Yeah, she's messy and doesn't want me to see her place. Yeah, probably a lot of clutter and husbands lying around. Okay, can you just be supportive? Did I ruin it for you when you had that online thing with that person who was obviously a man? Okay, yeah. I kind of wish you would have intervened before I flew to San Diego. <laughs> Max comes across something interesting on his computer. Huh, this is weird. Some guy's been collecting social security since the beginning of the program? That would make him like 128. <laughs> huh. I wonder if he eats a lot of dark chocolate. <laughs> I- I've been reading that's really good for you. No, Penji, this is obviously either a mistake or some sort of fraud. I guess I should just look into it. I'm hoping it's legit. He takes a bite of his Snickers. If that chocolate thing is true, golden. (laughs) And we go to the Blythe home later. This is the home of Charles and Liz, the vampire couple we met earlier. Liz is back toward the kitchen dining area of the open concept living area, setting the dinner table. Charles's brother, Jesse... 28 and douchey, is nearby watching some soccer on TV. Vienna is playing Salzburg. I love that joke, guys. I don't... Anyway, uh, Charles... <laughs> Charles is at the door talking with Steve the Blood Guy, a weird guy in his 20s. Charles hands Steve money in exchange for a styrofoam cooler. There you go. Thank you so much. I say, do you ever wonder what we're doing with all this blood, Steve? No. <laughs> All right, see you again Wednesday. Charles starts to shut the door. Do you want to hang out or something? I don't think so, Steve. We could go to the mall. Bye, Steve. Charles closes the door. Okay, we really need a more normal Craigslist guy willing to sell us his own blood. God, I miss feeding on humans. Mm -hmm. Liz has crossed in to grab the container of blood. You know why we stopped, Charles. It's not nice. You know what's not nice? Having to move every few years so people don't think it's weird that we don't age. Also not nice, not having sex for 17 months. That's great. Just mention that right in front of your brother. We've all lived together for centuries. Not a lot of secrets. I know that Jesse shaves his entire body and that this is all spray tan. Hey, I'm a personal trainer, okay? There are mirrors all over that gym. Okay, and if I don't spray, I'm just a tank top and a pair of weights moving up and down by themselves. Liz crosses away. This marriage, Charles turns to Jesse. This marriage is literally never ending. This will never end. That's why I only marry humans. Have fun till they croak. Then you get a new model. And how's that working out for you? Well, people are living a little longer than they did back in the day. Jesse's wife, Phyllis, <laughs> 60 and not very bright, approaches. <laughs> She's over twice his age and could pass for his mother. Oh, sweetie, um, have you seen my reading glasses? On your nightstand, babe. <laughs> oh, she gi- the exception. She, she gives Jesse a kiss on the, on the lips and crosses off. 
Jesse and Phyllis's Jesse and Phyllis's fraternal twin teenage sons, Henry and Mort, both 15, enter through the front door. Despite being twins, Henry and Mort could not be more different. Henry is romance novel gorgeous. Think a young Robert Pattinson. Mort is short, pale, and cherubic. Think a young Danny DeVito. <laughs> they enter mid-argument. I said I'm sorry, Mort. Whoa, whoa, settle down. <laughs> Hold that energy in, pal. What's the problem? The problem is, Dad, the only girl I like in the entire school is in love with Henry, and I don't get it, Dad. He's not even funny. He just stares off, and he says weird stuff like, oh, there's so much pain in the world. It hurts sometimes. <laughs> And we're twins. Why does he get all the good traits? Super strength, super speed. I'm half vampire too, you know. All I get is can't go out in the sun. Hey, bub, you can read the dog's mind. No one else has that. He indicates Argus, the family's slothful basset hound. Right. Wonderful. What's that, Argus, buddy? Huge news, everyone. He's hungry. <laughs> Phyllis crosses in, concerned, having overheard something. What does he mean, half vampire? Here we go. Oh, my God. Is that why none of you age? It's not just good genes? Are you all vampires? Are vampires real? Mort, what did I say about talking like that in front of your mother? Okay, I got this one. Liz waves her hand in front of Phyllis's face, wiping her mind. You didn't hear anything, Phyllis. A beat, and then Phyllis awakens. She turns to the kids. Oh, hey, kids. How was school? <laughs> they ad-lib good and fun, and Phyllis crosses off. All right, can we eat now? In just a bit. How long does it take to pour blood into some glasses? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we'd wait for our daughter so we can eat as a family because some of us actually enjoy talking to each other. Oh, oh here she comes. The door opens, revealing Emma. Hey, guys. Sorry I'm late. And now you know why, what I would come to learn. My girlfriend was a vampire. Ooh, did Steve have steak this week? That blood smells delicious. And as the gang heads for the dinner table, we fade out end of act one. It's act two, we're in the dining room. Our vampire gang and Phyllis are gathered around the table. Phyllis eats food while everyone else pushes theirs around on their plates. Liz mimes taking a bite with an empty fork. Mm. Oh, another triumph, Phyllis. <laughs> Everyone else ad-libs really good. Mm, yeah, it's so good. We, we cut quickly to under the table. Six sets of hands sneak food to Argus the dog. <laughs> then we cut back to above the table. Jesse lifts a glass of blood, which everyone except Phyllis has in front of them. Okay, I'd like to make a toast to my boys, Henry and Mort, who combined for 52 points and 34 rebounds last night while leading the Wildcats to a victory. We play games. While the world is at war. <laughs> okay. Dan, I know you're just trying to be nice, but everyone knows I'm not on the basketball team, so when you say combined... Still technically true. Love you, boys. They all clink their glasses and start to drink their blood. This is the highlight of their day, and they really savor it. It sends them into a bit of an orgasmic stupor for a moment, their eyes closing in ecstasy. Wow, you guys really like your VA juice. Phyllis shrugs and drinks from her glass of white wine. So, Dad, 
Do you, do you think we could maybe get some driving time in this weekend? I mean, I need to practice for my license. I promise I'll be really careful with the Trans Am. Okay, you better, because it's a classic. Met your mother because of that car. I pulled up next to her at a stoplight in 1985, and, and what did I say, honey? I'm already seeing someone, but you're hotter. <laughs> <laughs> and she was. Jesse she was. and Phyllis share a loving smile. Charles pushes back from the table and crosses to the TV. Touching story. We done? I'm going to go and watch the Lions. No, football's on tonight? No, Nat Geo, Lions of the Serengeti. I just need to see something kill something. And we angle on Liz and Emma. Liz eyes Charles from across the room. Look at him. Watching his stupid program while I do the dishes again. Are you kidding me? How do you not catch that? Typical lions. So just say something, Mom. Why don't you guys work on your problems instead of snipping at each other all the time? I would love to work on things, Emma. I've been trying to get your father to go to therapy again, but he hated the first time. And we cut to a flashback to Vienna, 1896. (laughs) Charles and Liz sit on a sofa across from the legendary father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. You know what? I'm feeling pretty blamed right now, Dr. Freud. You just keep on taking her side. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's enough for today. Uh, This week, remember, be kind to each other. And Charles, try to suppress your desire to sleep with your mother. He keeps on saying that. Why do you keep on saying that? And we go back to the present. Liz and Emma are as we left them. Now, anytime I bring it up, he just refuses to even consider it. This is why I'm so messed up. How can I have a successful relationship with you two as an example? Hey, hang in there. It's going to happen for you. Thank you, Uncle Jesse. Well, assuming you're not completely broken. I mean, you've been dating for what, like 150 years? So that's going to leave some scar tissue. Jesse cracks a beer and exits. (laughs) Emma is on the phone in her bedroom. We intercut with Max, who is exiting his car on the phone. Hey, I, I know I act crazy sometimes, but I'm lucky to have you. Oh, well, I'm lucky. I have to finish up this work thing, and then I could swing by after work and pick you up for the movie? Uh, I'll just meet you there. Okay, Emma, what is going on? Okay, why won't you ever let me come to your house? Listen, whatever you're hiding, you don't have to be afraid to tell me. My family, we're different. I'll understand, I promise. Okay, The truth is... She looks around, then sees Seinfeld playing on her TV. We're Jewish. (laughs) What? Why why would I care about... Oh, God. Is this because I got Samuel L. Jackson and Lawrence Fishburne confused the other night? Seriously, I'm very woke. Yeah, it's not you. It's my father. He just won't like me dating someone not like us. Okay, hey, you want to wait? We'll wait. But when they finally meet me, they're, they're going to love me. I got to go. Shalom. What? <laughs> Max hangs up, arriving at the door of a suburban home. He rings the doorbell. Charles answers, answers it. We realize Max is at the Blythe's home. Can I help you? Hi. Yeah, my name's Max Cipolletti. I'm a criminal investigator with the U.S. Social Security Administration. From inside, this gets Jesse's attention. It's come to our attention that a Jesse Blythe listed to this address has been collecting benefits since 1935. Is that weird? (laughs) God damn it, Jesse. Listen, it's probably a clerical error, but I'm going to have to speak with all the adult members of the household, ask a few questions. Jesse waves his hand in front of Max's face, attempting to wipe his mind, a la what they did earlier to Phyllis. Actually, you will now be on your way. 
because everything is good. <laughs> right, that's what I'm trying to determine. What did you just, why did you do that thing with your hand? What is that? Oh, shit. <laughs> Does that only work on weak-minded people, or is my mom weak-minded because you guys do that to her so much? <laughs> <laughs> um, I chicken or the egg I don't know. <laughs> so obviously it's a misunderstanding Jesse is a young man do we really need to jump through these hoops well down at HQ they like to say I'm an officer who plays by his own set of rules but those rules happen to also be actual rules so yes Max enters and crosses into the living room. Charles turns to Liz. I hate this guy. Wait, wait, wait. Aren't you supposed to call first or send us a letter or something? Yeah, we deal with a lot of elderly and they're kind of, well, protective of their benefits. And we find when they're prepared for our arrival, it's not good. You know, there have been some cane attacks. Mm. Last month, I suffered a puncture wound from a knitting needle. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, the perp sent me chicken soup and a $5 gift card to Old Navy. But yeah, it wasn't pleasant. (laughs) So look, I don't want to be here any more than you want me here. Okay, honestly, I'm only doing this to put myself through grad school. I'm getting my master's in psychology. Psychology? So, so you're sort of like a therapist? Well, you know, studying to be one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, um, would you mind if my husband and I were interviewed together? And we go to the library of the live <laughs> home. Max sits in a chair across from Charles and Liz on a sofa. It's the same setup we saw when they talked with Freud. And that's why sometimes I feel like Charles is listening, but he's not hearing. (laughs) Charles glares at Liz, then turns to Max. So to answer your question, three months. We've lived here three months. Uh Uh-huh. And and what do you two do for work? Uh, Well, Charles is in financial planning. And we cut to West Coast financial offices. Charles sits across from a middle-aged man and woman. So do you think we'll have enough for retirement? Absolutely. The good news is most retirements only last 20 years, and then you get to die. Get to die? Do not take that for granted. (laughs) And we come back to the scene in the library. And I'm a professor of history at Seattle College. And we cut to the Seattle College lecture hall. Liz is lecturing a group of students. Sure, he started some wars, but um, at a dinner party, Napoleon was actually, he was an absolute delight. Although once he got so drunk, he just whipped it right out, right at the table. And let me tell you guys, he should have had a complex because that was a little man. If you know, if you know what I mean. According to many historians. <laughs> And we're back in the library. Although Charles isn't supportive. In fact, he's against the whole idea of a mother working. I'm sorry, that was just unheard of where I grew up. Max checks his sheet. In Cincinnati in the early 90s? I'm just, I'm just saying I make enough money that it's not necessary. Tell us, Max, as a therapist, who do you think is right? <laughs> Okay, again, I'm not a therapist yet, and even if I were, I'm not your therapist. And also, therapists don't really pick sides. Yeah, we're right, but if you had to choose. (laughs) Fine, Liz is right. Liz pumps her fist. Charles glares at Max. As Max talks, we see Charles subtly dilate his pupils and will a vase from the mantle to begin floating toward Max with the goal of smashing him in the head. Liz sees what he's doing and counteracts this action with her own dilated pupils. 
The vase moves jerkily toward and away from Max's head, as though a tug of war were taking place with it. Max is unaware of the vase. Can I tell you guys a story? Uh, my parents loved to dance. They met at a high school dance, actually. But as the years went by, they stopped. You know, life got in the way. You went through a rough patch. Now, I'm a little bit of a romantic. So for their anniversary, I got them tango lessons. It reminded them how they used to be. You know, Charles and Liz, whatever it was you loved to do when you were first together, rediscover that passion. Find your dance. Liz wins the tug of war over the vase and it flies out an open window, crashing harmlessly off screen. <laughs> so we're done here, we're good? Well, yeah, as long as everything checks out with Jesse and Phyllis. Short time later in the living room, Max is across from Jesse and Phyllis. Jesse twitches his leg nervously, he's sweating. It's not going well. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, can you just go through that timeline one more time, please? Oh, yes. Okay, well, we met in 1985. We were both 28. Uh, uh-huh. In the Blythe Holmes kitchen, Liz is with a panicked Charles. In the background, through the kitchen window, we see Henry and Mort playing basketball in the driveway. Charles peers out into the living room, seeing the interview with Jesse not going well. This isn't good. He's not satisfied with his answers. I don't want to move again. I love Seattle. We can be outside almost every day because of the cloud cover. Damn, I didn't want to watch that stupid Twilight movie, but they really nailed it. (laughs) We cut to a flashback a year ago. The Blythe family watches Twilight together. It's the scene at the end where Kristen Stewart's Bella is asking Robert Pattinson's Edward to turn her into a vampire. Kristen Stewart on the TV. I dream about being with you forever. As Robert Pattinson considers this on the television. Don't do it. Get out of there, Edward. Fuck's sake. Liz just glares at Charles, and we come back to the present in the kitchen. Charles and Liz are there as before. We are not moving. We're going to kill him. Are you out of your mind? In the background outside, we see Mort struggling to dribble as Henry steals the basketball and executes a Jordan-esque dunk. We are backed into a corner. Plus, do you miss hunting and feeding? Remember those nights long ago? The anticipation, the chase, the blood pumping into our veins as we sucked it up. Pumping and sucking. (laughs) Pumping and sucking. (laughs) We did used to have fun. Oh my God, that's it. Max said it himself. Find our dance. Hunting and feeding on humans is our dance. I don't think this is exactly what he meant. And we hear Jesse off screen. Wait, wait, bro. You're not getting it. Charles and Liz hustle into the living room to see Max heading toward the front door. Again, I was born on a leap year. (laughs) That's a lot. It's like seven, five years. I'm I'm really sorry. There are just too many inconsistencies here. We're going to have to open a wider inquiry. Max opens the door to leave. Steve, the blood guy, is just walking up to the house with something in a brown paper bag. Hey, guys, I think I shorted you a little bit of blood earlier. I'm a little lightheaded, but here you go. Not now, Steve. You want to play some board games? The door slams shut by itself, and the deadbolt locks. What the fuck? He turn- Max turns to find Charles and Liz transformed into their more vampiric selves. Fangs extended, fingernails like claws, skin pale, and eyes a disturbing yellow. They both let out hisses. I'm really sorry about this. We're really not bad people. Hold up. Are we eating him? Let me go get the boys. 
Jesse rushes out. Charles starts to close in. Okay, 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 okay. Uh, uh, you, you know what? I'm, I am actually, I'm, I'm dismissing the case. It's closed. You, you are good to go in the eyes of the U.S. Social Security Administration, please. Charles and Liz go in for the kill when we hear off screen. What's going on? Emma, having heard the commotion, is coming down the stairs. Emma? Max? You know him? A beat as everyone tries to understand what's going on. This is my boyfriend, Max. Max, these are my parents. We're not Jewish. (laughs) And we fade out, end of act two. Act three. It's a short time later in the dining room. It's the most fraught, awkward, meet the parents, sit down ever. (laughs) Emma and a stunned Max sit across from Charles and Liz. More tea, Max? Uh, No, no. I'm I'm good. So Michigan uh, undergrad, huh? That's a good. That's a good school. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe I should go. Can I, can I go? I, I'd really like to go. Dad, you're not saying a word. He doesn't feel welcome. It, it's not just that. <laughs> well, what is it? The almost killing you thing? Everyone apologized. What do you want me to say, Emma? I don't want you dating a human. There. And, and worse, you lied about it. I knew you'd react this way. Well, you were right. He's not one of us. What about Ivan? Dad, we broke up. You can work things out. He's got his own business. He's a vampire. Who still feeds on humans. Occasionally. And even then, just really evil people. He ate a guy for cutting him off in traffic. Well, they can't all be the worst of the worst, Liz. (laughs) Is this Ivan a jealous type? Okay, I'd like you to leave now. And if you say anything, we will kill you. Nice meeting you. Wait, Max, wait. She grabs his arm and he reflexively recoils. (laughs) What? I, I can't touch you now? I'm sorry, Emma. This has been a really long, really weird day, okay? And I just want to go home, okay? I just found out vampires are real, and my girlfriend is one. So if someone could please unbolt the door with their mind, I'm ready to leave. Charles unbolts the door, and Max exits in a hurry. Thanks a lot, Dad. Emma crosses out. Liz shakes her head at Charles. You just don't get it, do you? This is not about you and what you want. This is about Emma. So she's in love with a human. Guess what? You fell in love with a human once too. Or are you sorry that that ever happened? Of course I'm not sorry, Liz. It's a nice moment and then... Oh, for God's sakes, take a Claritin! (laughs) We're interior Max's apartment later. He's there with Benji, with whom he has just shared the news about Emma. Wait, 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 wait. So many questions. First off, like, what do you think her number is? What? Like, let's just say conservatively, she's been with one guy a year. Like, how old did you say she was? Benji, this is not helping. Okay, I don't need perfection. But when it comes to a potential mate, I'd like her to be, you know, alive. Boo! So the girl of your dreams turns out to be undead. You met someone you're really into. Do you know how rare that is? So yeah, she sort of has like a weird family sit. They tried to eat me. But she's beautiful and funny. And screwed up enough that it keeps you interested. Don't throw something special away just because it's not exactly what you were looking for. Benji's words get through to Max. 
That's what the dude told me when I showed up in San Diego. Um, <laughs> I didn't listen, but it's still good advice. I guess Emma is pretty amazing. Aside from, you know, literally being a monster. Oh, God, this is your moment, Max. It's like all those rom-coms you claim to be flipping through whenever I walk in the room when the guy realizes he loves her, but things are kind of tough. Does the movie just end? No. That's when he crashes the wedding or rides up in the white limo and wins back that street hooker. <laughs> this is when I fight for her. Yes, exactly. So what's your big gesture, Max? What are you going to do? A beat as Max thinks about this. He notices the dog, Sherman, chewing something. Max pulls the object out of the dog's mouth, and we see it's the small fire truck toy from the scene in which Max and Emma met. Oh, I think I might have an idea. And later, we're exterior of the Blythe home. It's a peaceful afternoon. In the distance, we hear a siren wail, and a fire truck rounds the corner. Max hangs out the side as it pulls up in front of the Blythe home. On Max's command, the driver sounds the horn. It blares, and Charles, Liz, and Emma emerge from the house to see what the commotion is. Max talks over the loudspeaker. Emma! I'm here to fight for you. Not physically, but with a grand romantic gesture. He won't go away. He's like the plague, which I witnessed and preferred. <laughs> Max hops off the fire truck and runs up to Emma. I don't care that we're different. Okay, I don't care that you can't go a week without breaking up with me. I don't care that you're unable to metabolize food. I'm crazy about you and I want to be with you. Emma throws her arms around Max and they kiss. You got that fire truck. You you got that the fire truck thing was from when we met with with the dog. Yes, 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 Max. The fire truck honks and pulls away. Max calls to the driver. Thanks, Jeff. He's an old buddy. We met when my roommate Benji left a candle unattended at my apartment. (laughs) The the first time. Excuse me, I am still not okay with any of this. Also, he shows up in a truck and everything's fine. That still doesn't change the fact that he is a human. To a passing jogger. Hey, how you doing? Lovely day. (laughs) They all smile pleasantly and wait for the jogger to pass. You know what? I don't care what you think. This is my decision. He's only around for 50 or 60 years anyway. I mean, you're stuck with us forever, so you better care. You're being incredibly unfair. Well, life is tough, and then you continue not to die. (laughs) (laughs) They bark back and forth for a beat, their anger crescendoing, then finally... Guys, guys, I think I have a solution. They all stop and turn to Liz. What if we made Max a vampire? Are you insane? It's a win-win. Everybody gets what they want. Uh, I don't really want to be a vampire. Please, Max, please stay out of this. I don't want him to be, I don't want him to be one either. Charles, you said him being human was the whole problem. I was being nice. You want me to say it, huh, Emma? Fine, fine. I don't like him. He annoys me. And being stuck with Max forever, not the solution I'm looking for. Are you really going to be this selfish? What about your daughter? Uh, I mean, I really like Max, but we've only been seeing each other a couple months, and this is kind of a major escalation commitment-wise. I mean, not to be rude. No, 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 I get it. I'm not on your not-turning-me-into-a-vampire side here. Yeah, (laughs) Mr. Big Gesture. Let's say we did do this. Let's say we did do this, Liz. And then they break up. We'd still be stuck with the guy. He'd be one of us. He'd have to join our cupboard and move in. He could uh, move out, maybe, if that happened? Mom, he wouldn't be safe on his own. What about the werewolves and the vampire hunters? Werewolves? They're mostly harmless. 
28 nights of the month. Okay, fine. You know what? Whatever. Clearly, you guys aren't into this idea. I was just trying to help do whatever you want. Great. Then I'm going to keep dating Max. No, you are not. It's not up to you. You know what? No. We are going to do this right. Max approaches Charles. Charles, I know that you only recently found out about Emma and me, and you're processing a lot of stuff, and I want to give you your time, but I also love your daughter, and I don't want to lose her. So how about this? I'm not asking to marry her. All I'm asking for is a chance to keep getting to know her. That's all. Literally the smallest commitment possible. I'm comfortable with that. So what do you say? A beat as Charles considers this. He takes in the pleading stares of his daughter and his wife. Fine. (laughs) Liz smiles. Emma runs up and hugs her dad. It's a nice moment. But if he treats you badly in any way, we eat him. (laughs) Sure, dad. You got it. (laughs) Emma shakes her head at Max. He's kidding. Behind her for Max's benefit. Charles nods. I'm not kidding. You won't regret this. Thank you. Emma, I'll pick you up tonight at your house. Because I do that now. (laughs) He smiles and turns to head off, and we hear him in voiceover. And there you have it. Boy meets girl. Boy nearly loses girl. Boy wins girl back with big romantic gesture. It was a real-life happy ending. That is to say, I was happy right when it ended. We hear tires screech. Max looks up just as a 1985 Pontiac Trans Am slams into him and sends him flying to the pavement. Damn it, Mort! We see Mort was driving the car. Jesse in the passenger seat giving him a driving lesson. They emerge to join Charles, Liz, and Emma, staring down in shock at Max's body. He came out of nowhere, I swear. I think the brakes need servicing. Do not blame the Trans Am, Mort. Max, are you okay? Max? We have to get him to a hospital. There's no time. Look at him. We have to do something. There's a long beat as the only option begins to sink in. Hey, what about, what about turning him into a vampire? <laughs> I mean, that, that, would, that, would, that, would fix, that would fix this. What's kind of the temperature everybody's feeling here on this one? <laughs> huh? hmm? He might pull through. Dad. Okay, fine. Damn it. And we cut to an overhead shot. And that's how I joined my new family. The day I died. Or I guess, technically, they made me undead now, is how you would say it. Yeah. Together, they start dragging Max into the house by his legs, across the street, up the sidewalk, up the path. Has it been smooth sailing? Not always. But that's to be expected. All families have their problems. And we're no different. You're doing the right thing, Charles. This is the man I fell in love with. Thank you, Liz. They share a nice moment. And then... <clears throat> Can you please call Dr. Feldman? <laughs> Max's head bangs off the stairs as they drag his body into the house and shut the door. Our problems just happen to last forever. We hear Phyllis off screen. Oh my God! Why are you biting that man's neck? What is happening? <laughs> Guys, I got this one. We fade out, end of act three. We're in the tag. We're in the tag. It's the Blythe home a few days later. Benji helps Max unload his belongings from a U-Haul truck. So yeah, that happened. I moved in shortly after. I had a lot to learn about my new life, including how to control my new urges. Benji unloads the last box and he and Max bro-hug it out. Oh, something smells amazing. Did, 
Did you have pizza and wings last night? Nah, I crushed all that this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, be- you better go very quickly. <laughs> Benji heads back to the U-Haul. Hey, thanks for your help. See you at work. Seriously, go. Lock, lock the doors. <laughs> and we're in the backyard of the Blythe home. Jesse and a freaked out Max stand on the edge of the roof. To be honest, it's been a bit of an adjustment. Okay. It's all about your attitude. You just got to jump. You jump and then you think about flying. Jesse jumps, levitates for a beat, then lands gently back on the roof. Oh, shit. The, f- <laughs> the family sans Phyllis enters from the kitchen. Max, what are you doing? Um, uh, uh, Jesse's teaching me how to fly? Jesse, that's an advanced power. He may not get that for a long time. Oh, still no powers, Max? I, I, I don't know. I've, I feel stuff percolating. He hears the dog bark. Dog's hungry, by the way. <laughs> Mort throws his hands up, annoyed that he's no longer special, and crosses off. All right, buddy. You'll never know until you try. Here we go. Baby bird needs a little push. All right, ready. And one, two, push. Jesse pushes Max. He falls like an anvil, and we hear a bone snap as he lands awkwardly in a planter. (laughs) Everyone winces. But with the help of Emma and the rest of them, I'm sure I'll get the hang of it. Okay, that'll heal. That'll heal. You're a vampire now. So much pain in the world. (laughs) And we fade out. End of show. I usually start by telling the writers my favorite joke from the pilot. And there were were a whole bunch uh, with this one. It was kind of hard to decide. I guess it came down to... Um, a couple. There was when Jesse says, are we eating him? Let me go get the boys. <laughs> I love that. I love his enthusiasm and wanting to include his sons. That was definitely a favorite. Uh, and then Charles, um, life is tough. And then you continue to not die, <laughs> which just summed up his whole <laughs> worldview. Sure. I love those. I love this pilot. I can't wait to get into talking about it more. Great. Um, well, I want to thank you because it was so fun to get to hear it read after, uh, you know, it's been a few years since we wrote it. And I love that that you do this podcast because it's like a, you know, it's a great service, I think, for people who like us who never got to hear it. You're you're so welcome. <laughs> Seeing you guys enjoy it is is a great reward. Um, when you're a writing team, and I know this having been in a writing team for many years and you take lots of general meetings and you take all kinds of meetings and everyone, the first thing they want to know is how'd you guys meet? How'd you start writing together? So I'm sure you guys have told this story (laughs) hundreds of times over your career, but I'm going to make you do it again. This will be the official record (laughs) of this uh, since we're recording. So let's talk about how you met, how you teamed up, how you got your start writing. Sure. Well, I, we, first of all, we should have come up with a lot of embellishments because it's not that great of a story, but uh, <laughs> basically uh, we were both assistants uh, on uh, the animated show Dilbert on the UPN some 20 something years ago. I, there was, I was a writer's assistant. I think you were the PA and uh, it was an animated show. And so there was just a lot of downtime and we were literally in the same cubicle together. They And, and so after playing much like Dilbert. Much like Dilbert, yeah. So I think after we played maybe hundreds of hours of, of PC, uh, the computer game, uh, golf. Minesweeper? No, oh, it was golf. Yeah. And, uh, but we, we were like, we should, we should be doing something productive. And we both wanted to be writers. And so uh, we wrote a spec King of the Hill together. 
And it just so happens that our boss at the time, Larry Charles, the guy who uh, uh, created that show, got a hold of it. We were being picked up for the second season around the same time. And he's like, do you guys want to be writers? And we're like, yes. So, uh, so, so that's how we got Yeah, Larry day. Charles is a hero in the Port household because he gave me my first writing job and he gave my brother Moses his first writing job on Mad About You. Oh, wow. That's how I got the PA job on Dilbert. Because that's what I was going to ask because you skipped over for a lot of people trying to break into yes, the business. Sure, uh, the sure. important yes. step, which is how did you each get that job on Dilbert? Because that's the hard thing to do is yes. to get that first well, business it, job. It, mine was nepotism because uh, <laughs> uh, my brother heard that Dilbert was looking for a uh, PA and he said, my brother is trying to get a PA job. And then uh, 20 minutes later, I was uh, meeting with Larry and he said, I think you have a good vibe. And uh, then he hired me and that was how I got that job. So Moses had already, he was already working. Your brother was already working on. He had worked the previous year uh, with Larry. Larry had left to uh, Mad About You to do Dilbert and, and create shows. So, but Moses was on Mad About You at the time still. Okay. So, and how about Joe Wiseman? I uh, had, I was a PA a year and a half or two years before. Uh, I was the night PA for Caroline in the City. And so how did you get that I just job? aged myself. How did I get that job? Oh, that's a good question. So uh, I went to school. I went to college at the small liberal arts school in Santa Fe called the College of Santa Fe. It's now out of business. Another story. <laughs> um, oh, that, that's a big go out of business. You, you, they send you stuff saying, like, contribute to the fund. You're like, yeah, they'll be fine. And they, they were not. They're not fine. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I took a business of entertainment class. And at the time, Santa Fe was kind of, uh, Hollywood was had a sort of love affair with Santa Fe at the time. They were doing lots of Westerns. And so uh, the guy who taught it was this uh, guy, Larry Sugar, who was sort of like a prominent entertainment lawyer and producer. And uh, every the class was on Saturday because he was like once a month, every Saturday, he would fly out someone from working in Hollywood and you would do the class and talk about business. And one time uh, he brought out a lawyer named uh, Robert Myman, Bob Myman. And uh, so fast forward a couple years later, I moved to L.A. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was going to Chapman University in Orange and I need a place to live. Uh, I wasn't that familiar with L.A. I was living in Denver, uh, where I grew up. And so I went to uh, AAA, got a map of L.A. I looked at it. Orange in Orange County is right in the middle of the map. And I'm like, this is perfect. <laughs> now, of course, I know Orange is a completely different county. I drive out here with my Tercel load of everything I own. I get there, I unload. I meet all my roommates, uh, one of whom is Adam Myman, Bob's son. I'll get to that in a second. And I'm like, I'm gonna go look at the Hollywood sign. They're like, what? I'm, I'm gonna go look. And like, I'm driving, <laughs> and like an hour and a half, I'm like, oh, I moved to the wrong city. <laughs> so, anyways, long short, uh, I became really good friends with Adam, Bob's son, and through that, uh, became family friends. And Bob represented a lot of people who were on Caroline the City. Knew I wanted to be a writer and wanted to get into that space, and sort of uh, got me uh, got me the job. Okay, so, and so you did a but, season. As a, as a night PA on Caroline? Yes. One season? One season night PA, which was, uh, it's the worst job in the world. It doesn't exist anymore because I think they just email all the scripts right. out. Right. Can you explain what the night PA job used to be? Uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nightmare. <laughs> um, you, you go in, you know, in the evening. Uh, and uh, basically at the end of the night, after the writers have done the, re the, the rewrite, and in, the, in that case, that show was a late show. They would go to midnight was like early, two in the morning was normal. Whoa. I would then have to 
make about 150 copies on the copy machine, which took like an hour and a half, and then distribute all throughout the office. But then I had to drive them to all the cast members, all the guest cast, the director, uh, the high ranking, right? It was anywhere from, you know, 18 to 25 deliveries. And this is before Google Maps. This was like, literally Thomas guy. I would, I would about an hour each night. I would, I would have all my delivery addresses and I would try to calculate the, the route that was most efficient so that I would, it would only take me three or four hours. So I will say what a, the, the sub, the uh, highway system in LA is incredible without traffic. Like it was like, <laughs> the, 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 there was two benefits. One, I learned the city really well. Uh, and two, after I got dinner for all the riders, there was about, you know, four to eight hours of downtime. And because we didn't have cell phones, you know, smart, smart devices or whatever, uh, I basically, after a while, uh, after I was comfortable with everyone and I said, can I sit in the room and not say anything and literally just watch? And they were cool with that. And so for, you know, good half of the season, I got to sort of like sit in on the room and kind of see how the sausage was made, which was a huge benefit. Um, and then the other, well, the third benefit was like, uh, you know, I worked hard, everyone liked me. And so the next, uh, season there was a position open for a writer's assistant, actually on a, on a different show that a lot of the people on that show created, uh, called union square. So then I was able to become a writer's assistant and be in the room the whole time. Uh, and, uh, and then that show didn't last, but I believe my next job was writer's assistant on Dilbert. So I believe that was the original question is yeah. how I ended up at, but yeah, so no, that's a long road. That's one of those tough break-in jobs. It was rough. Job. It was rough. Oftentimes you would, I would get home and I was in traffic because people were going to work at six in the morning. Oh, so it was brutal. It was brutal. Um, so yeah, I, the, I was like the night PA on, I was day and night PA on Dilbert. We didn't even, I didn't know that there was just an IPA. <laughs> but because on animated shows, there's no, yeah. run, you know, the reason we're making those deliveries. Yes, I was. Yes, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I had to make like hundreds of copies. And then, and then, uh, at one time I was making copies. I thought everyone was gone. It was uh-huh. like very late at night and the copy machine gets very hot. It just generates a lot of heat. So then... <laughs> Wiseman walks in and I'm shirtless making copies. Just staring at the copy machine. Scream. He screamed. <laughs> I, was... I think you covered yourself up. Uh-huh. Well, you like, got it's... to. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I used to have to drive the scripts out to, like to some of the actors lived in Malibu and it was like way the f out there and and uh, um, then they would always come in like for the table read the next day. And like clearly not have even opened. Well, them. they would be yeah. holding the same <laughs> the sealed, They'd be holding yeah, the sealed envelope, which was open so it up depressing. in front of you. Your whole and, previous and night that didn't need to exist for nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you both, well, you're doing those jobs because you wanted to be writers. Mm-hmm. And had had you written scripts on your own before you wrote that spec? King of the Hill together. Yeah. I, you had I, actually finished scripts. Yes. On yeah. I had written one script on my own, and I was also like a political cartoonist in college. So I liked doing, trying to be funny and, and writing some stuff. Uh, but yeah, it was my script with Wiseman was much better than the one I wrote on my own. Uh, well, I also <laughs> wrote some bad scripts on my own. Uh, I, when I was a college freshman, I think, at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, this is before uh, Santa Fe, I believe CSU Fort Collins is still in business. It's a state school. <laughs> um, uh, I, for an English class, there was like just an open writing assignment. And I, 
for some reason wrote a Cheers script, <laughs> and the 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 professor was kind of like, oh yeah, this is I've never I don't know what to do. No one's ever done this before, but he liked it and then recommended that I go to film school or if that's what I was interested in, and I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know like you could study film, um, so I then found out CSU does not have a film department and transferred to CU Boulder for a year. Uh, that's a whole lot different story. I should never have left. That was really fun. Um, <laughs> and then at the College of Santa Fe, I saw an ad for um, a college spec college uh, television writing contest sponsored by uh, Gary David Goldberg. Uh, so I wrote a Seinfeld spec and sent it in. And uh, a couple months later, I was notified that I had won and I got a small stipend. Uh, it was like, I think it was $3,000, which at the time was literally all the money I had in the world. And then it was uh, supposed to come with a six week uh, internship. So I wrote Gary David Goldberg a letter saying, hey, thank you so much. This is, and, and inquiring about the internship. And he basically said, I'm kind of stepping away from the business for a little bit, but he wrote me this really like encouraging letter that I have framed, still in my office, basically like, don't give up, keep writing. And, uh, and so that, that, that was sort of like, uh, very inspirational as, as the years went on, I kept trying to find this writing contest, uh, and I couldn't find it anymore. So I, I started to sort of like have this thought that like, maybe a lot of people didn't enter it <laughs> and maybe like, who knows? I could have been the only, who's writing like what college students are writing spec TV scripts, especially back then. So, uh, I actually met him a couple times later and I wanted to ask like, did no one else enter this contest? But I didn't. I kind of like. You know why I know that? You know, that's the thing. I, I sort of like. I let thousands, me have my thousands illusion. And thousands of entries. Whatever. Even if it was, it all. It, it worked. It, it, it. That money was all the money I had when I moved out here, and it gave and me it the confidence. You too, and it encouraged you. It encouraged me. Maybe the confidence. And, yeah. yeah, for sure. So, trying. did you guys find once you teamed up that the writing became easier? Yeah. As a team. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just uh, you know it's. It's especially with comedy. It's fun to have somebody else there that, that you know you're not just sitting in a room alone. I mean, you know, like it's hard. I sure I find it hard when you're just sitting there. Just is this funny? I don't know. That, that's the big thing. If you <laughs> say something and you get a laugh, it's like okay, there's we know there's something there. And it's, yeah, and a lot of writing is a conversation. I mean, that's why you know we have these staffs. You know, that are yep. just bigger versions of a writing team. Obviously, it's ten people, and you know you're talking it out. You're talking out the story, and you can do that in on you in your own head obviously and and a lot of people do uh but i, I like i like uh talking it out with someone else and it's know. handy the same way we have staff so like it's handy to have someone with a different point of view or a different perspective or a different background and, and all that stuff yeah so um so dilbert and then what were the next few jobs after that uh the next job we got i think was son of the beach which was probably the best or was it fun job that we've had um, that was it, yeah. That was a crazy fun. It job. was uh, the Howard Stern Baywatch uh, spoof. Oh, right. When I was so a, a comedy stops, so when we first got offered that, I was just kind of like, oh, well, okay, we're gonna write this thing. It's just a bunch of boob jokes, and and I had so much fun. The the guys who there was created jokes. It, there it was, was not just boob. <laughs> it was not, yeah <laughs> yes. Uh, and then the the guys who created it were 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 so funny and uh, really sort of like led us sort of into their circle and we, we were able to contribute a lot and plus we were on the the beach the, the tim stack the guy who one of the guys who created it was also the star so the writer's room would basically just go wherever he was and we shot on the beach a lot so we're on the beach 
you know, just pitching just the the most. Uh, and it was, and I was a big Howard fan too, so that yeah. was fun. And he almost mentioned our name one time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so is that still? Do you look back on that as one of the most fun I jobs? Think so. Still, yeah, I probably. It was so yeah, fun. yeah, it was a lot of fun. And we were able, it was a very uh, small staff, so we were able to just, it was a good boot camp. No, we were the staff. We were, we, it, it was Tim, the three guys that it created it. Tim, us. Jim, and Dave, the guys that created it, and then there was us, and we wrote like eight of the episodes there. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's great training for it was like, one of your yeah. first jobs. Absolutely. It really was. It was, it was just like, like boot camp, yeah. To turn it out and to like, yeah, it was really uh, helpful and educational. Mm-hmm. So that just lasted the season though. Correct. Yeah, then we went to just shoot me after that. Yeah. Right. And you were there for how we were just there for the for the sixth season. Season okay. six. Yeah. yeah. It was uh, fun. Really liked it. And after that? Um after that, where'd we go? Um directly after that? I'm I don't remember. Like uh, we worked, on, we we worked on the office for a little bit after that mm-hmm. and we started developing shows and Yeah, so what was the first show you developed that you pitched? It was uh, called Inseparable. It was, uh, I was, it's literally still like my favorite pilot that we maybe mm-hmm. shot. Uh, it was, um, Christine Bransky and Ed O'Neill and they played a, uh, a couple that had been married, but now had each been married like four to other times. Right. And, um, it was about their daughter and her, and her, um, her new marriage and, and all their, all their like steps and exes and and all these other people, they were a very close knit divorce family. So it was like this young couple trying to make their marriage work in the sea of divorce. Um, and it was just a lot of good dynamics, you know, it's like, cause this guy's still in love with that person. And, you know, um, it was just like, it was a great cast. Kristen Ritter was in it, Larry Wilmore. Um, and so that's the first pilot you wrote, you shot. Yeah, it was very so. fun, yeah. 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 Yeah, but, I, but it didn't get on. So. It didn't yeah, get on. Sure. And, and even just to even just to shoot your first pilot, it was amazing. Yeah. Although we were on the office at the time, and so we had to leave to go shoot it. So it was just sort of like, oh my god, we're going to shoot a pilot, and then we're also like leaving this sort of magical show that was the second season. It was exploding, and it was it was like bittersweet. Uh, right. But uh, but yes, it was the shooting the pilot was fantastic up until the point where it didn't get on. <laughs> yeah. Well, but the whole process was really fun. So we haven't talked about what what is your process together as writing as a team? Um, well, it, it's changed a little yeah. bit over the years, but we generally, you know, talk it out a lot. You know, the story, obviously, and characters and uh, it, it used to be almost together for every step face to face talking it out and then writing it line by line by line and we still do a lot of that i i think partly technology and also just partly like you know growing and being uh more confident as individuals whatever we've we've started doing stuff you know still with close communication but like there's there's splitting up this yeah yeah, you you take this scene you take that scene um but then we always get together and go over it um yeah Someone at the keyboard, someone pacing behind. Joe Port likes to type. You he like loves to type. To type. Yeah, yeah, I like to type. I just like to think that way. Okay. So that's a consistent, you don't take turns really. You're Joe Port, you're usually. Occasionally I will, but he likes to. I yeah, likes but to sometimes I don't. And uh, that's nice too. <laughs> well, I also, I like to pace. I like to move around. I like to sort of stare out the window, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and did you experience, I know when. Ted, my old partner and I, when we got to Friends, 
and they split us into two rooms mm-hmm. the first time because we had been on shows and we were a team and yeah. we had written oh, together. Yeah, we were yeah. always in the room together. And the first time they're like, okay, you go in this room and yeah. you go in this room. And it was like, but wait, uh, I don't know how to do this without. Oh, that never bothered me. And first of all, and I know like there is like a kind of belief maybe that, oh, wait, they're not supposed to do that. Or at least early on, you think that. It because feels like there's an injustice because <laughs> you're, you're still paying us. To me, team, I yeah. guess that's part of they. that's sure, the allure of hiring a team is that you have two people and can send them off to do whatever right um and and also we see enough of each other true sure. Sure. <laughs> and how does it when you're developing when you're coming up with ideas what is that process like for you guys i don't know that's just sort of varied you know like this year we're um uh we are writing a pilot for cbs that's uh, based on a british show so you know that's very different than coming up with something from our lives. But I do think we always try to find what's the angle from our life, whether we're writing a show about vampires, like the one that uh, you guys read for the podcast. Like that was sort of autobiographical because Wiseman and I have been writing partners for so long. So we we were like, what about a show about two people who are stuck together forever? (laughs) You know, and then so we came up with, oh, this vampire couple that's been married for 500 years. So Uh, it's sort of based in, and then we've done other pilots that are, you know, we did a pilot called Jojo and Jane, which is obviously just couldn't be more autobiographical. Yeah, Jane is the name of my wife. <laughs> right, right. Um, the I never it didn't occur to me that that Eternally Yours was in a way about your partnership. Sort of the most brilliant way of writing about a writing partnership well, that I've that I've heard. I saw. I listened to, or I, you know, you know, everyone like uh, I don't know if people are reading written by because it feels like there's a lot of jokes about people not reading written by. Like when it comes, written by is the Writers Guild magazine that's sent out to to members. I happen to love written by, yeah, and I, I think there's pearls of wisdom yeah. in it. And uh, I read it when around the time we were coming up with that show. I read an article about interviewing Paul Feig about Spy. And that was all about him trying to step into this larger-than-life mentor's shoes. He was finally doing a movie without Judd Apatow, he said. And so that he was the Melissa McCarthy character, you know? And so, like, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, it's this has nothing to do with Paul Feig's life, but I guess it does. And that's where we kind of started talking about, like, the vampire thing with us. Huh. Okay. So that's, yeah, let's, while we're there, let's talk about Eternally Yours. So that <laughs> okay. was really, um, was that the kernel? Was was it um, reading that story that made you think of that? Or I don't know if that, I don't remember the inception or if we were already like in the world of vampires. And yeah, then I don't something. remember where the vampire thing came in. And I think it might have been something about that, though. I think you're right. Yeah. I think, I think, I think you were talking about sort of like, this interminable relationship. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> and sort of like, oh, like, if vampires are immortal, and if what, right. if, what if they didn't believe in, in divorce? Right, but I think it was because of reading that article. Sure. Yeah, I remember you Written by mentioning guys. that. Written by, read, read it. it. Yeah. Read it. <laughs> okay, so you, and had you been fans of vampire movies and shows? I mean, on a, on a casual, casual level, level, sure, I always enjoy stuff like that, but I wasn't like no a super, with, no, no, yeah. no. But then when we sort of pitched it, we sort of, 
I dove in and, and started reading a lot of books and watching movies and whatnot just to sort of... And I love that, uh, what we do in the shadows. Yeah. I haven't seen the TV show yet, but I, the movie was so good. Both I, are great. I haven't either, but you had, wouldn't have seen that movie when you were writing this. Yes, so actually, you, it came oh, out sort of around the same time. I think it came out at the same time. And that was, I, we didn't actually know about it, but then after we started saying this idea then people brought it up people, yeah and yes. it was, but it was very different this is ours is a yeah. family show that's about these four vampire roommates but i mean it was great it was i think it was helpful movie. too because just going into we did this pilot for cbs and going in there and just mentioning vampires uh the person we were pitching to had seen that movie recently and loved it and sort of like was able to get oh okay yes this is a world that can be mined for comedy mm-hmm. right. uh, so i think it was like helpful to have like a uh a, successful and very funny example of to sort of point to right but the show hadn't the, the tv show version of what we do in the shadows oh well, no that no, just that came was, out i think right. yeah because people i know after we did this read and actors or everyone's sort of trying to wrap their heads around why this show isn't on television mm-hmm. why eternally yours didn't get picked up and someone's like well maybe it's because of what we do in the shadows they mm-hmm. thought it was too similar but that show wasn't on um and like just said tonally they're very 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 different different. they're very different i think uh yeah people are always trying to figure figure it out like what there's got to be an answer to why something this good doesn't get on um so well i think at the time that we did it and first of all a lot of things don't get on obviously and Mm -hmm. there are a lot of good things that that people do that don't get on but uh you know it was very a weird outside the box show for cbs at the time now maybe CBS would do a show like that, but uh, at the time it was more. You know, they they didn't have a lot of single camera shows even, um, and yeah, it's not on and, brand for correct. No, CBS. and I think it's sort of once you it's once you've done the pilot somewhere, it's hard to get it going somewhere else. Yeah, I mean it yeah, does happen course. occasionally, but um, and it went to CBS because were you did you guys write this while you were in yes. a deal with CBS yes, Studios? Correct. Mm-hmm. correct. So did you pitch it? to all the networks i don't oh yes we did we did we did did. but cbs had a lot of enthusiasm they were super enthusiastic about it yeah um, and they've got the inside track because it's their in-house studio even though it's not really on brand for them they sure. really liked it, and there's always that belief. Well, maybe they'll take right, right, right. the they, they they sort of big swing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They never really do. Sure. Yes. Um, <laughs> so you had this idea of the couple who are stuck together for hundreds of years, sort of based on your <laughs> partnership. But where does the brilliant idea of um, this romantic relationship and the him working for the IRS, and that's how he finds out? Um, I think yeah, I think. My my friend uh, pitched that there should be a foil who's working for this uh, Social Security Administration because that would be someone the who might flag, track yeah. down yeah. vampires because we they're, they're around forever. And right. We were big sort of like Breaking Bad fans and sort of like, you know, they had the the brother-in-law who was who worked for the DEA. No, no the uh, what's the yeah. drug enforcement? DEA. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And so we were just sort of like, okay, that's that's like seems like a natural sort of like enemy of, mm-hmm. of these people. And we thought there would be some doofus who has been collecting these things like this is great. We can just right. keep collecting this forever. Right. And that would sort of be a, a way in. And we didn't want to do Vampire Hunter. We just wanted to do more of a bookish. Yeah. Uh, yes. Right. Foil. Yeah. I mean, there's so many great twists um, in just this pilot that... At act breaks where the re- the way the reveal happens and uh, reading this to me it, 
it's just the difference when you read something by a younger writer who may have a lot of raw talent, but hasn't been doing it long enough to have the skills to set up and pay off everything. And I felt like in this pilot, even when Max gets hit by the car, you've set that up earlier that Jesse's boy, mm -hmm. you know, he wants to have driving lessons and you've set up the Trans Am. So it's not like at the end, someone randomly you right, know, gets hit shot. by a bus, he gets hit by some, something that has been set up earlier. And when it's set up, it doesn't feel like sure, a set sure. up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess there's not a question there. There's just <laughs> sort of a compliment. Um, and I don't know for, for you guys, if those things come along through the process of rewriting and rewriting. Yes, totally. 100%. I always say that, like just yeah. rewriting is so much easier than writing the first draft, obviously. Like uh, Neil Simon has that book rewrites. Yeah. That's his like memoir. And uh, I mean, it's so true. Like that's when stuff gets good. Yeah. Yeah. You can start adding layers and sort of like, Oh, I don't remember exactly how we came up with the car thing, but yes, yeah, sort of like, I, obviously it was important to us that it's not just this random thing that happened right. at the end. But I'm sure we came up with the ending first. And then I, 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 I'm and sure then that we did. Yeah. 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 We tried to come up with something character to sort of set up and, the, you know, with Jesse would, would, would drive the, the, tra the Trans Am. And, yeah. Yeah. Because he's cool. Because he's, he's, he's very cool. cool. <laughs> and I love that, that he's a physical trainer in that line he has about the spray tan. Oh, yeah. and without the spray tan, he'd just be a tank top and some weights <laughs> yeah. going up and down. Um, it must have been fun just figuring out, okay, what are the what are the fun jobs to give to all of these yes. vampires who've been alive? Yeah, and he's kind of like a douchey bro, too, so right. that seemed like and, a good fit. And his whole relationship with Phyllis, and, <laughs> and, and I love how each time she, she realizes they're vampires, you know, probably for the hundredth time, yeah. she gets so freaked out. And, um <laughs> They have to wipe her, yeah. So, uh, do you know how many pilots you guys have have sold over the years? Do you keep track? I don't know. I don't uh, keep track. You've, you've we've shot how many? We shot like eight. Eight of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. We've probably... Twelve, maybe? Yeah, that's what I'm guessing. Like Twelve or thirteen. Yeah. Um, we typically probably do one a year. Some years we've done two. But, uh, yeah, I think twelve or thirteen is probably accurate mm -hmm. and what's your attitude towards it at this point i mean how do you you guys don't strike me as jaded and over mm -hmm. it and yet i know how tough it is each time i guess I'm, I'm trying to be more about the process now and just like kind of some things are so out of your control and you can't mm -hmm. like there's no point getting all angry about it if it doesn't get on or this or that like i'm just trying to be like let's just try to make it good and then let the chips fall. Yeah, I, I have to feel passionate about something. It's like every time, you know, people sometimes sit down and try to figure out, okay, this place wants this. This is what they do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can come up with an idea that's exciting, but it's ultimately, I think we just have to believe in the project and be excited by it. And I don't think people even really know what they want. You know, like Correct. Greg Garcia famously pitched Earl all around and this is he's already been very successful everyone passed on it every or all, at that time everyone was the four networks right and i mean i don't know how he got the willpower to do this but he decided i'm going to spec it anyway and then you know went on the game yeah a like big show. um i mean he was specking it for the four people that had already passed on it yeah yeah <laughs> 
But but once yeah. they read it, you know, it, it, then then they could understand what it was. Right. It's a level of confidence that if you can hold on to it, this, d- despite all the setbacks that sure. everyone has in a career, that you could go like, you know what, I, I went in there. Most people, I think you're right. You go in, you pitch there, it was four networks. Now you could probably pitch 15 or right. 20 yeah, places sure. and everyone sure. passes and yet you still to have that belief in an idea go, you know what? Okay, and I will say, nothing awesome. bad has ever happened from writing something for us. That's a great point. Like, anytime we've, we wrote this spec uh, script for no reason, um, that was basically, it was OJ, you know, the People versus OJ show? I love that show. Netflix, yeah. So we wrote what, we wrote uh, season two, episode one. Basically, it takes place a couple uh, days after the verdict, and it's like just the adventures of all these you know, friends that are that we came to know through the pilot. You know, it's like OJ trying to make up with uh, with Bobby Kardashian mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, just uh, all the different adventures. We, we treated it more like a sitcom, and uh, it did not get made. Um, but well, it's like obviously, but it led to like a lot of good, other good things. You know, and it's just because we had an idea we liked, and it, it just made us laugh. Everything that. always leads to something. It seems like you know, and I will say this: this is if we're doing like kind of like. Oh, hey, younger writer. Yeah, and stuff. Um, y- you know, Joe was talking about having a good attitude at like this crappy job that he had. And I, there's a lot of bad shows that we've worked on mm-hmm. and that everybody who's been around for a while has worked on. And we've worked on some good shows, too. But if you just have like a if you do a good job at a bad show, that always comes back yep. and something good happens. From all that. those people are going to go do other stuff. Yes. And they'll remember and it all yep. just have a good attitude. Yeah, but, and I haven't always had a good attitude every show, but I, I know when you do, it, it people people notice it. Yeah, it doesn't pay to feel like you're above the show you're right. working of course, on. Of course, absolutely not. Nowhere you're more miserable. Yep. Right, people yep. don't have a good feeling about you. Exactly, and um, and the worst thing that can happen if you write something is no one likes it. So what? Right, they're not going to like it if you don't write it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> this is all solid advice, people, uh, writers out there. But but how do you avoid trying to figure out why something didn't go and learn lessons from that? Because I agree, it is a useless endeavor yeah. because there's an endless number of lessons and there's a randomness to it. And you can never solve this puzzle. You can never figure out, okay, I know why that one didn't go and I'm going to correct that mistake the next time. But do you guys, do you fall into that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, and I think the, the and you want to, because you you want to, you, you care and you want to know and you want to not repeat mistakes or want to have information. But it's this balance uh, between caring too much and caring too little. And I think this applies to almost every level of, 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 of writing. Even like when we would write scripts for shows, you always have your favorite jokes. And invariably, especially like on multicams where you have to go through the grinder of the daily run throughs and the rewrites, rewrites, that joke is almost always jettisoned at some point along the way. And that sucks, but it also isn't important. Like it's there's there's other there's other jokes, there's other things. So it's like and it's for me, like I say, it's a balance like you want to care and you want to feel that pain because you want to know that you're creating something that means something to you. But at the same time. It's all moving. It's all like it's you, you, you have to embrace that there's things you can't control and and that's how it is. So no, but I'll think of like 
I'll be like thinking of like, oh, we should have done this in the cold open of this pilot from like eight years ago. Yeah. And sometimes I'll <laughs> Some, text he'll text me saying, that, and I'm like, well, are you talking about this pilot from six years ago? Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, but I think that's all in service of, it's okay to, to try to figure out what, what wasn't perfect about it. And, and also it's, you know, knowing it's not a meritocracy and it's not necessarily that some things, you know, they just wanted to pick up the show that had that one actor in it or something instead of your thing. But but you also have to pick yourself up, dust, dust yourself off and, and get back in there. You know, it's like they but say, learn writing lessons, too. Of if course. You, yes. if, you, if you feel like you did could have done something better, then just that's good to know for the next time. Sure. Um, I remember rebounding, which is a pilot you guys wrote that I just absolutely loved. I think this is a fantastic pilot. Oh, thank and, you. Um, Obviously, the ones that are more personal sure. have to be harder when they don't go. Uh -huh. um, but have you generally uh, felt like the, the grieving process gets shorter when these things don't go each each time? Or does it depend on just how much you love the project? It depends. You know, with network, there's a... Schedule. So it's like you find out things. If, if it is shot, you find out in May if it's going to go or not. And and if you if it's not, you find out in the next couple of weeks, uh, you know, late January, early February, whether it's going to get shot. And then once you find that out, there usually is downtime to sort of wallow in it. And then, you know, come staffing time, you, you get busy again. So to me, there's sort of like a natural built in mourning period. And then you kind of just have to move on with your life. Yeah. Also, you mentioned rebounding. You know, that was obviously very autobiographical. That was about my fiance uh, passed away. And, and then it was about the group of friends who I played basketball with who helped me, you know, uh, get past that and move on. And it was, I loved the pilot. I thought it was great. And Will Forte was great in it. But you talk about the grieving process, you know, the language is, is particular. <laughs> yeah. But I will say, you know, that's like a perspective thing. So what? Right. It's a fucking pilot. It doesn't get on. Right. You have a unique perspective. <laughs> so, right? yeah, there's much worse things than if a show doesn't go. Yeah. And you're lucky to be writing for a living. And, uh, and um, yeah, so... It's, it hurts if a pilot doesn't get on, but it's also not the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, have you guys pretty much stayed in network television? Have you done... Stuff? We've worked on some cable stuff, but uh, we've mostly done network pilots, uh, yeah. but we want to do some streaming stuff. Um, and But you haven't yet. Mm -hmm. And you talk about just how it feels now in this completely different world. Yeah. Um, I guess you guys are very uh, established and in-demand writers in network TV, and and network TV still has a draw. Um, I'm sort of asking this because I, I feel like I'm in a similar sure. place. You know, I've also pretty much my career has been in network television, um, and we've we've all come up in a system that doesn't really exist anymore mm, we yeah. all came up in the yeah. four or five network world um and it still can be a quite lucrative world to to, to work in and it's uh everyone knows you and they yeah buy your stuff and yeah so, you know, so well i think you, there's also like this thought that nobody's watching it like i go you know my wife is from nebraska i went home uh for christmas uh to visit with her family every house we went to cbs was on 
So a lot of people are watching it, you know, it's like, uh, it's just, I think maybe in LA, we, we feel like everyone's just watching, you know, streaming. streaming but, um, but I also just think it's going to become very less of a, a difference, you know, like remember they had the Cable Ace Awards at, at yeah. one time yeah. and then everything just became one thing. And uh, I mean, I'm trying to also say this for our own benefit because like, I think I want to move into that world right. more and uh I, I don't. I just think it's sort of all. It's a lot of the same people playing in in the different ponds. Yeah, I guess the biggest difference becomes how you tell stories in these streaming services. If if they're dumping all the episodes at once, yeah, yeah, it's a very different way of writing. Yeah, and if you're doing a show for CBS and there's going to be one each week, mm-hmm. it just is. You just end yep. up having to write differently. Um, that to me is really the only significant difference as a writer. Like more serialized, you mean? The serialized thing, and also that you, you know, we've all come up in this system where someone might come in at episode five, Mm -hmm. and it's a new show, and they want you to make sure that someone can come in episode five and be caught up and not feel like they've missed anything, whereas if you're doing a show for a streaming service... When someone's watching episode five, they've watched episodes one through four. Sure. You know, that that's just how it works. And so you have a you have somewhat a freedom um, to not have to re-up the pilot each time. And you know, that serialized way of mm-hmm. right, you can assu- you can assume everyone knows what's going on here and make callbacks that, and that's still not the case with the CBS, you know, sure. the network mm-hmm. kind of world. Um, yeah, but that just seems like a fun other way of thinking. And I mean, it doesn't seem that different, I guess. And in terms of like nuts and bolts, it's just, you know, just different. Yeah. Um, what other lessons have you guys learned from, Hmm. you know, your, (laughs) your years doing this that you could share if there are people wanting to do this job listening? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I feel like I've already mentioned some, you know, work hard and be nice, be, be a person that people, a lot of this job is spending 10 hours a day with, with people and people don't want to hang out with, with assholes, you know? Um, my mom told me when I moved out here, she has a lot of like catchphrases and she was (laughs) like, uh, be in the vicinity and she would say it like that um <laughs> but she meant basically she was right because she was you know getting the pa job and obviously we talked about that's not like so easy to get but if you get those kind of jobs uh versus just doing a different job that might allow you more time and even more money um you're not going to be in the vicinity you know like uh we we got hired to be writers on dilbert because larry charles read our script, but he read our script because he knew us, you know, and we were not just uh, names in a stack. Right. He liked us. And what mistakes, you know, when you guys have run shows and been on staffs and younger writers come in, first job, perhaps, have you seen mistakes that those young writers have made on staff? Yeah, it's, it's hard because, like, you know, sometimes I think people come in and maybe try too hard. Um, and you can also have the opposite, too, where maybe people sort of, like, pull back a little bit, but it's, it's hard, especially that's where like when I was the night PA and I was able to sit in the room, I was sort of able without any expectation just to sit there and observe and, and, and learn. Um, and, and obviously each room is, is 
different as well. Um, but yeah, I, 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 th I think so maybe sometimes coming in and trying to do too much, uh, might be a, the most common mistake from like a, like a brand new writer that I've seen. And what do you guys look for when you're hiring? Also, I would just say pitching fixes is, is good if you're yes. new to the room and young. And I don't think people want to hear from just the nah yeah. perspective from that, even from anyone really, but from, from that level. Yeah, you may have to resist pointing out some problems if, that you don't have solutions right. to as a younger writer. Yeah. And maybe someone else will bring them up. But sure. Uh, that is a common mistake I've seen. Like, yeah, it's good for someone to point out the problems. Um, you don't have to have the best fix, but to, just to sort fix, of yeah. to give a direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what were you saying? I was just saying when you're hiring people, when you've you know been in positions where you're looking at writers to hire um, these days, like what, what are you looking for in material that you read or? Um, well, that's interesting because there's, you know, this like raging debate on Twitter now about like, does anyone want to read specs of original or of, 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 existing, of existing shows? shows? And a lot of people, get, I don't know why anyone gets angry on either side of this, <laughs> but, it's, but it feels like there's, there's angry. Right, there's no right or wrong answer. People. <laughs> but I think I, they're just on Twitter. So they feel like they yes, have to be. I angry. guess that's yeah. true. That's the default <laughs> setting on Twitter. It's angry. But um, yeah, I, I don't know why no one writes specs anymore. I guess there's not like a set of agreed upon shows that. I think that's the biggest problem is you you have no way of guaranteeing that the showrunner is going to have any idea what the show mm -hmm. is. Yeah, because that is some... the job is sort of being able to mimic another voice in a way. That's the job that you're signing up for when you're on staff. And I'm sure that I've read specs of shows that I was not familiar with. And you can tell if it's well written. You can tell if the characters are, are clear and standing out. You can tell if the jokes are funny. You can tell if the story is something that, you know, would be on television. So I don't think, look, I, I, as far as that debate goes, there is no wrong answer. Write something. If yeah, you write a but great I think pilot, we, we look amazing. for interesting voices, interesting perspectives, you know, somebody that has like a, a good handle on story. story. You know, that's very helpful because you can always lay some jokes on top of things. Yes. Obviously, it's it, you have to be funny, but but I feel like the being able to have a good structure mind is rare. So those people uh, are very attractive. I guess it comes down to you, you, you have a huge stack, a digital stack, of <laughs> right? And what rises to the top? Does the spec of... Um, man seeking woman i'm just trying to think of a show that might you might not know or does an original pilot rise to the top of that i mean i guess if i really didn't know the show then maybe the the spec yeah. might be a little bit but honestly like when we've sort of met with people for possible uh staffing on a show of ours you get so many scripts that the best way to get read is to have someone recommend you someone that we know like that's the number one if someone says hey I think this person got sent to you. They're great. Uh, they immediately move to the top of the list. Right. But also the ones that are really good, that those stand out quickly. Like it's not like, it doesn't take 30 pages to know that it's really good. Like you can read five, six, seven pages and you're like, oh, this is very good. Yeah. All right. I know you guys have a pilot this season and you're about to get some notes on it. <laughs> Yay. Um, so... Let's wrap up. Okay. okay. Um, uh, it was amazing to get to read this pilot. I just absolutely loved it. Well, like uh, Joe said, thank you so much. Yeah, it was thank you so much. It's such a treat to hear it read by a cast and such a great cast. You, you guys get such funny people, and uh, it was so fun. 
Yeah. When's this airing? Uh, I don't know. Okay. But it's airing now for people that are listening. Uh, <laughs> right at this very moment for you guys. All right. Thanks, All right, Joe. Thank thanks. you so much. That's it for our show this month. This show is produced by Ben Blacker and myself and our associate producer, Noah Findling. Thanks to everyone at the Hollywood Improv. Um, subscribe to the podcast. You know, were you excited when this showed up in your feed? Uh, did it seem like a nice little breath of fresh air? Well, uh, that's good. So subscribe. Um, you can follow us if you want to find out when the shows are going to be rescheduled. I think you got more important things to do right now than leave a review. So I'm not going to bug you about that. Um, we're going to be coming back in a month and we got a show for you the month after that. Um, so we really hope you enjoyed this and uh, brightened your day a bit. All right, everybody stay safe. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thanks for listening. <laughs>